are going to start this session with a conversation with Ellie Chuzel from Almanac Insights uh, Fund. Welcome to the show. Can you have to correct me if I'm pronouncing your name right or wrong? Ellie or Eli? <laughs> yes, Ellie, you've got that right. Okay, good. All right. Well, Ellie, let's uh, introduce you to our audience. Tell us a bit about Almanac Insights as well as yourself, and let's get you get us acquainted. Great. Um, thank you for having me, and I, I really appreciate that introduction as this is just a completely unprecedented time, and I think you're right that anxiety is high, but it's nice to try to have a conversation that will be, you know, in the future worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, very much. We're all working on this in real time, so I think the questions will be especially interesting today. Um, but yeah, some information about um, Almanac Insights. We are a venture fund out of New York City. Founded by David Barber, who is also the co-founder of the Blue Hill Restaurants and Stone Martin Center for Food and Agriculture, which for anyone who's really into restaurants knows that they're one of the top 50 restaurants in the world every year. They've been considered very much thought leaders in sustainable agriculture, soil health, gastronomy. And so David founded the fund um, in having really created this amazing ecosystem in and around those restaurants and the working farm and agriculture center just because there's so many interesting people coming through there uh, connected to food agriculture and finance um, and i feel lucky to have known david for many years uh, my background is that i was with whole foods market for almost 10 years the majority of my career in a really interesting role where I was dedicated to finding the next biggest brand and sort of the most interesting trending new food and beverage products to go on our shelves. And, mm -hmm. and so I was with the company from 2008 to 2017. So as you can imagine, my timing was perfect <laughs> in terms of uh, what I consider sort of to be the, the golden age or the, the heyday of natural food consumer goods. Um, it's really when all of the... Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the uh, sort of most exciting challenger brands were coming on at that time. And after years of, of being in the role, I sort of became the person you you came to if you wanted to launch your products at Whole Foods. Um, and so by the time I left Whole Foods, I was the global director of local brands and product innovation and had touched and worked with hundreds of young companies, businesses, farms to help them grow and scale their product lines um, in our stores. And David, yeah, so a pretty interesting sort of background and probably pretty untraditional in terms of the investors that you have on, um, which brings a unique perspective around retail brand strategy. Um, and along the way, I had known David, uh, my now boss, um, he and his, his brother and team at Blue Hill launched a yogurt brand with me. So. We've known each other and uh, he was really excited about launching this fund with sort of the same food philosophy that we shared at Whole Foods. And we are, I guess I should say, focused strictly on food and agriculture as a fund. And um, we're a $30 million venture fund. And you know, we're looking to make transformative, positive change in and across the food system, but sort of recognize that um, you know, the work sometimes done at Stone Martin Center and even um, at Whole Foods doesn't reach everyone. So we are 
we're interested in it, it doesn't have to be just the perfection ideal uh you know food business that is only touching a very very small portion but we're trying to sort of make more available um cleaner ingredients better supply chains higher quality standards to more people mm, interesting very interesting so um can you synthesize what is it that you look for in your investments how do you decide what is, you know, investment worthy in your ecosystem? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question, especially today and even in what's happened in the past few weeks and months is I really think about investments as what are we seeing that has true value and sort of long-term sustainable, and when I say that word, maintained uh, value. And that is, you know, for us, because we look strictly at food, beverage, and agriculture, both uh, in terms of consumer goods, but we also look at technologies, hospitality, retail formats that support that system. I think what we what we really care about is is this offering something new, differentiated, and really has a positioning or perspective that is offering new access, that is bringing cleaner, higher integrity uh, products or production methods to more people. So that's a huge um, part of the, the thesis and approach. And I think this moment is sort of forcing everyone to think what's really necessary, what is critical. But even beyond that, I think I'm reminding people who own businesses that don't feel quote unquote essential. Um, there's still also what's enriching, what is, uh, what's moving us forward and what is bringing a higher value to life even if a non-critical essential. And so I've actually been really reflecting on that the past few days in trying to give entrepreneurs advice and, and just trying to stay positive throughout all of this that, you know, organic products and food um, sold in a way that is more transparent with cleaner supply chains and where you can really um, gain a sense of trust and value is gonna become even more important throughout and post, you know, COVID-19. So uh, let me ask you a question that obviously comes to your mind as you're, you know, thinking about supply chains. In your industry, in the food beverage industry, how do you see geography playing out? I take it you invest mostly in American companies, yes? Yes. Um, primarily American companies. We have recently made our first investment in a Canadian company um, called Scout Canning, and we're certainly open to and will look at, at companies abroad and internationally. I think where we really like to make sure we're, we're um, positioning ourselves is to add value. So when we've shown interest or have considered um, foreign or international investments has been when that company is looking to launch in the U.S., and where we could actually serve a role. So if there are, you know, if we're being pitched by a European um, or South American company that is strictly doing business in those countries, we don't necessarily bring much value or, or strategic uh, input. And so we want to make sure that there's a reason for us to invest. So those that, have wanted, that want to come to America to sell to the American market are interesting to you because of your connections in the distribution channel. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in that context, then, how are you going to look at 
supply chains that are tied to China, supply chains that are tied to Europe, supply chains that are tied, especially going forward to places where there has been a ravaging because of coronavirus and the risks that it has, you know, made visible. Yeah, I think it's something that has been catapulted into uh, our just consciousness of, of needing to do a lot more research and education around where um, where we can feel trust, where and how we can, um, you know, put levels of transparency throughout the supply chain. So rather maybe for right now than even thinking about um, Chinese supply chains or, or what's coming out of there, looking more, and, and we've sort of been getting ahead of that, this as demonstrated by a couple of our portfolio companies of really investing in farming that is uh, more local or that is indoor tech enabled and has really controlled inputs and where the consumer is especially connected so you can uh, really be aware of everything that's going into that, that piece of food that's coming to you. So I think we'll probably double down on that thesis that, um, you know, indoor and tech enabled smart farms can play a real, real role in the future beyond um, just sort of what's new and cool, but actually that has true value in sort of times of uncertainty. Are you going to be looking for supply chains that are contained within North America going forward? I don't think I would go that far. I do, I will say that um, the, the investment we just made that I mentioned, Scout Canning, which is a North American seafood company uh, that's focused on canning as their preservation method and packaging method in, in a commitment to um, ocean health, avoiding microplastics, et cetera. And that was part of our, the impetus and what made it especially interesting is recognizing and in terms of global trade environments and even pre-recognition of how uh, intense this corona and COVID spread would be, recognizing that there was a real reason to have available and focus on North American supply. That said, that was sort of one particular um, reason to make that investment along with many others. But um, I think we've just got to look at it a, a lot more closely and I wouldn't want to rule out European supply chains at this point uh, by any means. I will say for many years and uh, for good reason, there is a lot to be mindful of in terms of Chinese supply uh, and, and different levels of food safety, different inputs that um, for many people have the choice, they would, wouldn't want to be putting that in their body. So that I think we've always been aware of. Mm -hmm. um, you brought up technology. So, uh, you know, our accelerator's work is almost exclusively in technology and technology-enabled services. So, um, I want to talk about technology from two angles in how you, in your portfolio strategy. Um, number one is on the production side. So, what kind of information technology usage are you seeing, innovative information technology usage are you seeing in the um, in the production of food. Sure, um, it's it's pretty amazing to see how much uh, development and innovation there's been in terms of technologies that support the overall food system and where 
um, where we've really focused our efforts and, and as an example, in terms of two of our um, indoor farm investments, we've invested in Smallhold, which is a, a mushroom focused indoor farm concept and Bowery, which is a much larger vertical indoor farm, uh, highly sophisticated technologies for greens and other vegetable crops. Um, mm -hmm. Smallhold has a really interesting pitch in that they call their concept distributed farming. So they sort of recognize that on average, you, the consumer, were allowing your produce to basically be dying, decaying, rotting, as they would say, for 15 days before it gets to you on a retailer shelf, on average. Um, for mushrooms and the mushrooms they grow, they have uh, built and developed this concept for micro farms set in retail stores. So their first Whole Foods relationship is the first certified organic farm within a grocery store in the US that's growing certified organic mushrooms on a substrate uh, right in the store to be seen. And so they, as the farmers, are beginning the grow out process of mushrooms on a substrate, which as far as you know, mushrooms go is, is any number of things. It's sawdust, it's coffee grounds. And they deliver it to the store still growing. Um, so prior to and seven days before harvest, once it reaches uh, their maturity, those mushrooms can be harvested in store and sold that day. So um, there's a lot on the back end of that. Those micro farms as well as the macro farms are collecting thousands of data points a day to really understand the best environments to grow, the most nutrient dense mushrooms to grow, the most efficient uh, and to reduce and seriously cut down on their energy and water usage, um, which is a little easier with mushrooms. But those types of systems, I think, are extremely thoughtful and um, allow really, I think, will play a role in the future for us to understand how do you grow this much fresh produce in proximity um, at scale and, and hopefully highly efficiently to sort of feed a growing population. Um, and then I think one other example of where we're really noting um, some technologies which is becoming more and more important is uh, as a result of nutrient density and the quality of fresh produce and foods. There's some pretty scary statistics about the decline and decrease in nutrient density in the past 50 years. And so I think whether everyday shoppers are aware of it or not, we are, uh, we've identified several companies that we're really interested in that offer technologies that can scan um, different items of produce. One particular company has cataloged sort of the top 15 items that's being banned, spinach, strawberries, sort of the top items that people would buy at a grocery store and are collecting thousands of data points per supplier so that you can understand when you're buying an apple from Washington versus buying an apple from New Zealand and anywhere in between what sort of impact that has on the actual nutrients and um, makeup of that piece of produce. And we're really interested in that just because I think that just connects to so many of the issues that climate change, intense pesticide use and residues, you know, the effect on microbial growth in the soil. There's so much that sort of, um, integrated into and resulting in the reason for that type of company. So we're looking a lot of the, at those. And, and there are several. There are a lot of spectrometers, which are these at-home devices that you can sort of scan your own 
piece of produce at home, and there are some that are more B2B services, and we're, we're looking across. Okay. So switching gears, so on the usage of technology on the brand building and distribution side, uh, of course, you come from the traditional retail background of Whole Foods. How does um, e-commerce play into this? What's, what are the trends? How are you playing into that, those trends? Yeah, I think we try to stay very aware of, you know, food being such a traditional and in many cases very archaic system. Um, and so there's, I think we try to find the balance between, and I am very, I sort of honor, respect the fact that it is a traditional business and, and in certain ways and uh, parts of the system, it sort of still needs to be in terms of um, just how food is handled and its perishability and the people who really understand it and sort of there is an operational piece that's still somewhat uh, old school traditional and important and then there's some real there's some real need and attention being paid to where can we modernize this where we can enable um, and put tech behind better distribution uh, better more rapid logistics to get people food faster fresher safer and so we look at a lot of those things. And I think one thing that sort of jumped out from that question that we're really focused on is access and sort of newer channels of distribution. Um, very often, as I was leaving Whole Foods, so this is uh, end of 2017, early 2018, there was such a shift and I was recognizing, um, you know, just a major evolution in terms of where people were buying, consuming food. Certainly in America, I think sometimes Europeans or people from other parts of the world come over and see where, where and how Americans eat anywhere, anytime, and they're a little uh, <laughs> horrified. But it is the reality of America. You can buy food easily in your office space, in airports, in public spaces, in and at events. And so um, we recognize as a fund that tapping into those modes of distribution and where are those access points offering people healthier, better options? Because for so long, it had been vending machines. It's, it's candy, it's um, processed heavily, uh, ultra processed packaged foods. And now there really is a system and a set of in infrastructure being built out to sort of provide fresher, better access to better foods. Give me an example from your portfolio where you've seen really interesting use of technology, internet, smartphones, apps, et cetera, to build a brand, brand or better I think that um, immediately as far as our portfolio, Sweetgreen, which is a, um, an amazing salad concept, but a fast, casual, quick serve uh, hospitality concept is just They've done such a phenomenal job to leverage their technology to the point that they will often almost describe themselves as a technology company. I don't actually think that that's quite accurate, and, and I wouldn't want it to be. They are a phenomenal and um, just highly sophisticated, fresh and prepared foods company that has utilized and leveraged tech to propel their business model forward in a way that's really been remarkable. Um, that's in terms of their delivery pickup and now um, what they're calling their sort of their third party spaces. So they have outposts all over New York City and other 
cities across the country where you are not walking into a sweet green salad store, but you're able to order through your office space, through your um, apartment building, through your co-working space, and have that, that salad ready for you for pickup at a certain time. Um, they've done great work uh, through their own development of their own app. They have never relied on, on an Uber Eats or, or a DoorDash. That is sort of up for discussion at this point. But they've, um, they've been very, very progressive and, and forward thinking in terms of how they utilize technology. And it shows as, um, you know, otherwise just sort of a salad concept, but they've really been able to elevate themselves based on their tech. Very interesting because this is a conversation that is happening in um, in the e-commerce world extensively right now, where you know brands are trying to figure out what is their uh, how much money do they spend on acquiring customers for their website, their direct shop fronts online, versus going through Amazon and and other you know marketplaces basically. And, and you're kind of raising the question or addressing the issue from the point of view of food vendors, restaurants, et cetera, and what role does DoorDash or Uber Eats and, you know, all these in other countries, there are things like Zomato and, and Delivery and so on and so forth. It's, it's all that whole delivery ecosystem. How do you go to market? What is the, what is the more effective way to go to market? How do you differentiate and so on? So, um, It'll be interesting to see what you find in a, you know, after there's more data. Right now there is not as much data, but in, in, a, in a while there's going to be more data, and then that's going to be interesting. Yeah, and I do, the one thing in terms of this, this moment in time, which will continue for however many months, I'm going to be really curious how, in terms of food and food purchases, how much this does propel and shift or accelerate the willingness of, of people across the country to order their food directly and use yeah. e-commerce sites. Um, I, I think there's been, it's of course been adopted um, and widely adopted, but still there's in terms of food compared to other industries and for good reason, there's been um, less of that exponential curve. And so you wonder if almost by necessity and out of fear, people are starting to order more directly to their homes and if they'll just, you know, maintain that habit um, post COVID, it just, there will be a lot of interesting shifts and, and we're sort of aware of that and watching, you know, watching our own businesses and portfolio. I had an interesting conversation yesterday sort of to this point um, with a young woman who is an entrepreneur. She is a still pretty young and fledgling business that is um, a variety of gluten-free and allergen-free cookies truffles and um, brownies that are refrigerated. And so she was all set, ready to go, launching with the key retailers uh, across, you know, New York City and the Northeast and was trying to make the decision whether or not to go forward with that channel strategy as of yesterday. And I'm talking to her yesterday and, and we both just sort of said, you know, it doesn't feel like the time to be doing that. You, you don't want to extend your full your cash at this moment toward, you know, free fill, because that's a requirement just when you're starting out in stores, you're giving a lot of free product to get it out on shelves. And it just doesn't feel like at the moment that someone's walking into a grocery store and buying something for $8 they've never tried before. So we're, we just sort of were talking through, should, should you pivot? Should you be really focused right now on direct-to-consumer sales? And, uh, you know, so I think 
ever more, um, you know, everyone always has to be nimble and flexible in building a young company, but I think this circumstance is going to really command that. Well, I think uh, one trend that is most likely to last, even after we settle down from this nightmare, is people will probably not want to go into crowded spaces a lot. You know, that's, I think that psychology for society in general, I think we have hit an inflection point where people will not want to be in crowds as much. Yeah. Um, so I think online ordering and delivery of food may very well be a much more prevalent phenomenon going forward um, than where we, what we have seen until now. Yeah. I, personally, I've always loved going to the grocery store and actually looking at the produce and picking one by one which ones I like. And, and yes, I mean, absolutely. But but I think it will be this desire for tactile um, selection of produce is going to be balanced by people's desire to not be in crowded spaces. Absolutely. And and you wonder then if technology maybe can play a role in if you are relying on, on someone else or a third party to be doing that picking for you, maybe there will become much more sophisticated ways because I'm the same. I really prefer to, to select my own produce. And of course, you know, I, I, that's so much a part of my life. And I have always wanted there to be a better option when I don't feel like I have the time to be doing that. So may, maybe there will be some added layers of, of transparency or even, you know, you walking, walking your personal shopper through and, and selecting together. Yeah. Are you familiar with, uh, I imagine you are, a company called Butcher Box? Yes. So, uh, so I did a story on Butcher Box, the entrepreneur. Um, we have this entrepreneur journey series where we invite people we have, who have built successful companies to tell their stories and in lots of detail on exactly how they've put one foot for, before the other. And uh, what struck me in the Butcher Box story was that if this is a bootstrap company, they have not raised financing, at least the point at which when I did the story, I don't know if they raised financing since, but he said one of the things that he faces in, um, in talking to investors, even though it's a very successful company, it's a subscription business model, et cetera, all, the, all, the, all these good things, um, is that it is a perishable product. Mm -hmm. um, how do you view, in your business, how do you view lots of food companies are selling perishable products, unless you're only focusing on food items that are canned and, and served? Yeah, it's, so it is the biggest uh, challenge of and for the industry, and, and I say that just not to be sort of dismissed or um, overlooked, but when you look at Amazon, they have not been able to figure that out and still rely on Whole Foods to handle, um, for the most part, their fresh and perishable deliveries, ordering, handling. You looked at Campbell's. Campbell's made a huge investment in and across a fresh food company, uh, Bolt House Farms, and they eventually had to divest all of those assets because they didn't know how to properly support um, the perishability. So the, there is 
a real need for and and again I think this moment really could have um, or sort of accelerate the interest and tackling of that challenge to how do we properly handle perishable foods get them to people quickly enough uh, avoid spoilage maintain and um, you know have more highly sophisticated systems to avoid food waste and perishability uh, that really hasn't been mastered and I think, uh, you know, that is where a lot of retailers who have been doing this for decades and many, many years have sort of a better handle on it almost than anyone else instinctually. And there's not a lot of uh, tech or sophistication behind it. So um, something we think about a lot, we are uh, actively and always looking at perishable goods because by nature, they're almost always better for you um, than shelf-stable foods. And so there's a real need to figure, figure out that loop, um, particularly as we find consumers are less and less willing to cook at home. Um, so they're that ready to eat and fresh, freshly prepared meals is such a growing category. And, and there's a real need to understand how do, we, how do we reduce waste? How do we get this to people more efficiently? So um, let me tell you what my thoughts are on this one. This, you, may, you will find this interesting. Um, yes. And you're, what you just said actually even more confirms where, what I concluded about this, uh, this issue. Um, you know, in One Million by One Million, our philosophy is to help a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars and beyond in annual revenue. We're not trying to fund a million companies. We acknowledge the fact that over 99% of the entrepreneurs out there will need to build their businesses in a bootstrapped banner. You know, the venture scale of going from zero to $100 million in five to seven years of building very scalable companies does not apply to most businesses. And I think this fresh food or perishable food category is one of those, which lends itself very well to building small businesses. And, and small businesses, meaning they could be $5 million, $10 million businesses that could be serving specific communities or could be serving online with, you know, distribution that grows organically and, you know, slowly, but not in this, like, exponential hockey stick curve kind of mode. And, and as far as I'm concerned, that's okay. You know, one of our favorite grocery stores in the Bay Area is Sigona's, which is, uh, which actually, there, there are two locations, one at Stanford Shopping Center, but the one that we go to a lot is the one in Redwood City across from the Costco store. Redwood City Costco is a massive store, and Sigona's is right across from them, and I think it's a very common behavior of people buying a certain amount of stuff at Costco and then going to Sigona's to buy, you know, fresh produce, you know, few things that are that are really great. And Sigona is a small company. It's always going to be a small company. What's wrong with that? As long as they're producing great stuff and, and bringing great stuff, great value to the consumers. That's kind of the message that we give in One Million by One Million is it's okay to build smaller companies as well. Absolutely. And I think it is. It's very relevant when you talk about the food business and a level, a certain level of quality and integrity. Um, I think another grocer that comes to mind or a retailer uh, that has followed that model is Erewhon in um, LA, in Los Angeles. They only have five storefronts, small, 
focused heavily on prepared foods and otherwise on organics and a lot of alternatives. And it's a, I will say it's a very expensive market, but there, uh, the level of care and retail standards and food quality is the best in the country from, from what I've seen. And I definitely <laughs> look at this stuff quite a bit. Um, yes. And so there's, yes, there's a real reason and value in maintaining a certain size in order to retain um, the integrity of, of your product. And I think that's a, always a really important reminder. It was always really interesting as so many uh, generalist investors and particularly tech investors got into food as there's been so much interest. I think it was a real rude awakening to say these businesses don't scale like tech companies and they can't and they shouldn't based on perishability, freshness, how to actually, um, you know, grow and scale effectively and retain that integrity. It's, uh, it's a real difference in terms of uh, business model. Tech, tech venture investors should not be getting into everything because they tend to behave like hammers and, and they think everything is a nail and this is not a not a nail that can be hammered out like that. Yeah, the, certainly the um, natural food and beverage world experienced that quite a bit in the past two years. Um, there's been just a real, unfortunately, probably a, a necessary um, downturn and, and Many, many businesses that we knew uh, that saw, you know, very high valuations who have gone through major down rounds and are consolidating and are, uh, you know, refocusing on profitability and whatnot. It's, it, that's had a real effect. And um, so, yes, it, it's had its, and that will, of course, hopefully the ones who were preparing even earlier for profitability are going to weather this storm. The ones that haven't been, it's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah, on the on the positive side of the influence of tech, you know, Facebook has created this enormous micro-targeting capability. So I often get fed advertisements on Facebook of these, you know, home chefs from various ethnicities. I'm I'm originally from Calcutta, India, which is actually the, a part of India that really prides itself for a very specialized cuisine. It's not the Indian cuisine that you eat at restaurants, but it's a very specialized cuisine. And Indian regional cuisine is quite specialized. So I, I get, I see these ads coming to me from Bay Area home chefs who are creating this very specialized regional Indian ethnic cuisine, and, and they're basically micro-targeting, and I happen to fall in their micro-targeting target. So that, I think, is great for small Small yeah. entrepreneurs to build businesses. Absolutely, yes. And and you're right. I mean, that's the reason there has been such an amazing support system for these businesses to grow. And some that were really needed and, and have been able to take advantage of not just selling into grocery stores where you're there very quickly a lot is asked of you in terms of plotting fees. And, and it's just one of these traditional and old systems that uh, is really capital intense. And so, yes, Facebook and Instagram and a lot of other tech services have provided a whole new um, both marketing platform and distribution platform, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, wonderful conversation, Ellie. This is, uh, you know, so contemporary, so, you know, directly influencing our lives on a day-to-day -day basis right now in, in this self-quarantine mode. We are 
we are cooking every other day and eating lots of green <laughs> and yeah. making that a part of the quarantine process. Things that yeah. we don't always, we always eat home cooked food, but you know, the frequency at which we are cooking is much higher right now. <laughs> I, well, that could be one silver lining. If America, more Americans start to cook during this time, that could be a really good thing. Yeah, and, and, and this cooking going out of society is a very bad trend. I think it's, it's absolutely terrible. Agreed. All right, well, thank you for coming, Elliot. So look forward to keeping in touch, and uh, let's see what happens. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Take care.